0: So, for those of you that are getting this via live stream or seeing a video version of it, uh, you're seeing a lot of unusual stuff behind me, uh, f- because you know when you get used to an Ellerslie sermon, there's a certain look to it, and now there's like chairs behind me, and that's mainly because we've we're hogging up a good deal of our uh, our our chapel with an extra stage uh, right now, and if you can see behind the chairs, there's actually. Uh, a, a structure back there. There's a curtain behind. This is this has all been overhauled this past week for a musical that is going to be utilizing our chapel for the next couple weeks. It's called Pilgrim, and a Rise Collective Theater is coming to town. In fact, there's a whole bunch of them uh, in the audience right now. And I I poked my head in on a dress rehearsal last night. I don't know that I was supposed to see anything, uh, but I saw something. And I tell you what, I I was just in awe. Uh, and my kids are are so impressed with the dancing side of this. And I have to admit the dancing was so impressive, uh, last night. And I don't know what was more impressive, uh, Mr. Formality or Apollyon. Uh, but both of them were really, uh, shocking in their own regard, like amazing. And, uh, I loved it because it was a dress rehearsal, right? So, and the, the side wings, they weren't exiting out. So, uh, Troy, uh, got done doing Apollyon. It was just like, powerful, powerful. Of course, I'm talking to most of the people that have witnessed that they know, but then he just turned into a normal person and walked off the stage. (laughs) But just uh, amazing. And so I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, For those of you that are going to hear the audio of this, uh, this is going to be over the next two weeks. So I would highly uh, encourage you to see if you can get a seat. We have limited seating for this, but you'd go to arisecollectivetheater.com to grab uh, your tickets. They're free, but uh, you still need to grab them because we have limited seating. So, uh, But that will explain the odd environs in which I am in right now, and uh, so it's sort of fun uh, being on the same stage where Christian and Apollyon fought their great battle. I mean, that's like right where I, I'm at right now. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, so guys, uh, let's enter into uh, this message. This is part two of a series. I'm not exactly sure how long this series is going to go, but I, I definitely have some things that my soul is chewing on. And it's this idea, the series is called The Dangerous Edge. And it all flows out of a conversation I had with a, a man named Dan Brocky from Bethany International. And their mission statement is taking the church where it is not. And then tr- I think something like training others to do the same. And so they go after the unreached And when you're thinking of going to unreached people groups, there has to be at least some screws loose in your head, doesn't there? I mean, don't you realize that if you do that, you're giving up so much of what we have like here in America. We have comforts. We have civil rights. You go somewhere else in this world where Jesus has never been and what rules there? Darkness. What, what is going to be the controlling faction when the truth has never been present? Well, it's going to be that which is anti-truth, that which is anti-Christ. Why would anyone willfully go into such an environment? And then, you see, it's supposed to be that we as Christians smirk at such a question. We're like, you see, you don't understand us, do you? You see, you don't understand what makes us tick. Now, here's the problem. That's the way historic Christianity has always been. Historic Christianity has a fascination and a magnetic pull towards the dangerous edge. We actually want to go where Christ has never been. We desire the world to know. And yet something is deeply baked inside of our modern North American version of Christianity which causes us to actually think the opposite. It's like, whoa, you know, I need to think about, you know, what is wise and what is healthy for my life and for my kids. And so as a result, I need to conclude that that is the wrong place to go. It's interesting. First century Christianity struggled with a problem. And it's a problem we don't struggle with. They had people that wanted to die as martyrs. And so as a result, they would actually help that along. My mental picture for that is coming up to a Roman soldier and poking him uh, and saying, hey, I'm a Christian, and then acting like you're running away and say, catch me, catch me. It's like, who would do that? You see, early Christianity, the idea of martyrdom was the highest ideal. It was like the greatest privilege to to be called by God to be a martyr. And so the early church had to issue an edict to say, hey, God loves the fact that you're desirous to die for him, but he also wants you to live for him. You see, we have the flip opposite problem. We are desiring to live for Christ, and God wants to say to us, hey, it's good that you want to live for Christ, but you also need to be willing to die for him. You see, it's part of the grand adventure. Last week, I called it the game on the dangerous edge. That most of us have never come to the conclusion that suffering is actually supposed to be something we rejoice over. That when we face trials of many kinds, we're supposed to consider it pure joy. That we're not supposed to consider it strange when we face trials of many kinds. And yet we do consider it strange, and we don't rejoice when we're facing trials. Why? What's wrong with our mentality? You see, it's not Christianity that's wrong, it's our hold on it. We have a very Americanized hold on this idea of the truth, and as a result, we we can't figure out why the church is so weak. Why have we lost our zest and our verve? Well, we've lost what I'm going to call the game, the game that causes us to smile. You see, this is supposed to be The thrill of our life to be able to serve Jesus with a smile on our face, and it doesn't matter how many times the devil tries to wipe off our smirk, he can't do it. It just immediately, boop, comes back like a Cheerio in milk. You ever tried to sink a Cheerio in milk? Push it down and bloop, it pops back up. Ah, Push it down, bloop. That's the Christian soul. It doesn't matter how many times the devil tries to stick us down under the milk. Bloop! We pop right back to the surface with a big smile on our face. Drives him crazy. And that's part of the game. How do we win this game? We're unsinkable Cheerios. You see, we as Christians have something the world does not have. Prove it. Christians. Show the world what is supernaturally derived and that which only we can demonstrate. So this is a great title, by the way. I mean, I get excited about my titles, but I'm really excited about this one. It's a little longer than I prefer. I have to admit that. I I like one-word titles a lot, but this is still, there's a lot of uh, depth to this. The Dangerous Games of Dangerous Men. Oh, boy, that is, that is good. Some of you aren't a- aficionados of Eric titles yet. But if you hang around me long enough, you'll start to like my titles. Even if at first you're like, "Huh, ah, too long. Well, I don't know. It'll grow on you. Just give it some time. The Dangerous Games of Dangerous Men. Oh, this is going to be good. Oh, I need to turn on my clicker after all that. So I'm going to give you a couple definitions of dangerous just in case you don't know what the word means. Dangerous, this is from the Oxford Dictionary. Able or likely to cause harm or injury? Huh. How about this one? This is the 1828 Webster's Dictionary because some of you only use that. Perilous, hazardous, exposing to loss, unsafe, full of risk. Now, I want you just to query your soul. Ask your soul a question Is this something that you are naturally attracted to? You see, everything in us is repelled by this. And so as a result, we don't engage with it the way God intended us to. So Jesus Christ is sort of a dangerous character. He's a guy that sort of laughs at the idea of danger. Listen to this. This is what he's telling his followers. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as servants and harmless as doves. Let the games begin. I'm going to send you out as a weaker character surrounded by what appears to be a greater strength. However, you need to apply wisdom. You need to understand how this game works so that you can flip it on its head. I mean, who sends out their followers that he loves, that he laid down his life for, into such a circumstance? Well, you see, God knows what he's doing. He's actually more wise than we are. And he has set up a theater in which the grandest story of all can be played out. And he will be seen more clearly in and through this than in and through a theater that we would design. So I'm going to give you your mother's wisdom. I know you've heard it before, but I'm going to give it anyways uh, to you because it's, you know it sounds very wise. Uh, listen to this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but see if it rings some bells. Stay away from danger. Okay, isn't that just the classic mom right there? Stay away from danger. Now, why would a mom say this to you? Well, because she loves you. I mean, that's why your mom says this. She loves you. And yet, it's funny because God's wisdom is just a little different. See, this is human wisdom. And I'm not saying that mom wisdom, there there isn't something to this. There of course is. You know, it's like don't stick your finger in the light socket. Yeah, uh, you know, that that could be a wise uh, statement. And yet, listen to God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Smile real big when you encounter danger and jump right into the middle of it. Now, you can say, what? Where do you get that from? Well, it's actually in the Bible. First Chronicles 11, 22. This, this exact same story is shared twice. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabziel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Now, I can almost guarantee you that Beniah's mom said to him, uh, "Beniah, okay, I don't want you jumping into pits on snowy days, okay, especially if they have lions in them. Can't you just imagine that uh, Beniah's mom was just like our moms? And it was like, okay, mom, there's a, there's a pit out there, outside, Well, uh, honey, it's snowing outside, and it's it's rather slippery, so what you don't want to do is jump into a pit when it's snowy, okay? That's not a good idea. But mom, it has a lion in it, okay? So who in their right mind would jump into a pit on a snowy day with a lion? And yet, this is listed amongst the acts of the mighty men of David with praise. In other words, this is admired in the text of Scripture. Isn't that extraordinary? You see, there should be something in us, especially as boys, even though some of us are very older, much older boys now than we were back in the day when boy used to be the term for us. And you see, there's a part of every boy that is wired to do sort of crazy things. And yet, that's usually knocked out of us somewhere along the line. I got... uh, Nate coming over here, was that blocking or something? Because I have a whole bunch of people watching Nate move a uh, ladder right now. You should watch all your heads. I was in Australia, uh, and uh, I was speaking to this large audience, and suddenly all their heads went, (laughs) and they were watching something other than me. So I looked behind me, and this mom was chasing her, like, two-year-old behind (laughs) me. Uh, This little two-year-old was wandering uh, behind me. So I can tell. Guys, you can't hide it. Joshobium the son of the hakmonite So I don't know if you guys remember him. He's actually one of the key mighty men that, that is under David. And he's one of my favorites. He really is. And so he's called uh, the hakmonite He's also called the son of the Chachmanite. So it's sort of like, oh, that's interesting. They both mean the same thing. And so you know what that means? hakmonite is wisdom. And so what you have is the son of wisdom this is the guy who's known in Scripture as the son of wisdom. How would the son of wisdom behave? So what would it look like if you were the son of wisdom? See, Jesus is going to be a picture of the son of wisdom, right? The church is supposed to be, in a sense, the son of wisdom. See, Solomon is going to write the Proverbs to his son. It is, so it's for the son of wisdom. Anyone who's going to receive the wisdom of God would be the son of wisdom. We're not going to be the fool. We want to be the one that holds on to the wisdom. So what does the son of wisdom do? Just look at these uh, scriptures. 1 Chronicles 11, 11, He, speaking of the son of wisdom, lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. Okay, so mom, there are 300 enemy soldiers out there, armed and dangerous. Do you mind if I go out and take them on? Okay, what would mom say? Not on your life. What, what in the world are you thinking? Okay, it gets, it gets better. 2 Samuel 23.8, he, speaking of the son of wisdom, killed 800 men at one time. You see, this just isn't wise. If you see 800 uh, Philistines out there, armed and angry, you should just leave them alone. Mm -mm. Not if the glory of God is at stake. Not if the kingdom of heaven is on the line. You see, wisdom is actually to stand in agreement with God's agenda to be in stride with what he is doing, which leads us to do things that mom might feel a little uncomfortable about sometimes. In other words, it might lead us to actually do things that bring us to a place called the dangerous edge. Paul the Apostle. This guy is the model Christian. Every mom is going to say, son, daughter, I want you to grow up to be like Paul the Apostle. Right? I mean, this is just how we think. Do we really want our children to be like, the Apostle Paul. That's a good question. I'll just let it hang out there for a while. I mean, we can be inspired by Paul, but we don't want our children to be like Paul. And yet, he is the model Christian that all of us want to grow up to be like. So listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4.9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul himself is saying, look, I am a model to you. I'm an example to you and what you have learned, received, and heard, and get this, and saw in me, these do. Which means whether we like it or not, whether we want our kids to be like Paul or not, Paul himself is saying, no, you do. You do want your kids to be like me. So when you study the Paul model, it is very, very uncomfortable. It moves us outside of the territory of the American church into a very dangerous territory. The way that this man is going to live is going to lead to extreme challenge for his life. And yet he is going to look back at us and say, did you see what I just did? You do it too. Ironically, do you know that Jesus is going to say the same thing? Do you see what I'm doing for you? I want you to pick up a cross too and follow. Whoa, I, I don't know that my mom would approve of me picking up one of those. They're covered with splinters and they're a symbol of death. (laughs) <laughs> what? Why? Why would I do that? Everything about Christianity is leading us in a very different way than our natural man would ever go. The natural man cannot esteem this path. It's called the narrow way, and it does not look attractive to the natural man. The natural man will scoff at it and mock it. However, the spirit of God in you is strangely attracted. To it. You know what narrow means? A way of difficulty and compression. It says, fewer are those who find it. I always like to tag on the additional line, fewer are those who want to find it. It's like, I don't see that. I, I don't see that. That's the way many of us function in the church today. We know what God is saying, but like, I don't see that. I don't think I heard that. I, I don't think I actually heard that. So Paul the Apostle. So whatever this guy is doing is getting him into trouble. So if you read through the book of Acts, you're going to notice that. I, I went through an entire message on, on just Paul's uh, encounters with uh, <clears throat> animosity. And it is you know quite dense and thick. It's quite a message just going boom, boom, boom. Then he went here, and this is what happened. Then he went here, and this is what happened. Then he went here, and this is what happened. Everywhere he goes, he finds trials. So this guy is getting stoned which means you know rock big rocks are being picked up he's knocked to the ground and his head is being crushed that's basically what happens when you're being stoned and by the way you don't survive stoning the the when stoning is finished because the person is dead so that's just a side commentary here but it says they stoned paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead however when the disciples gathered around him he rose up okay now what if we just stopped it right there well, praise God. That's amazing. So he stood for Jesus. I mean, took a beating for it, but then he got back up. Look at what he does and went into the city. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, that's where they just stoned you. I know. They need Jesus. What, what's wrong with this guy? Remember what Paul says? The things that you've learned from me, received from me, heard, and saw in me, these do. Nope. I I, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Or did we? You see, do we recognize that what God has commissioned us to do is not in the realm of normal human wisdom, which is why the world looks cockeyed at a Christian who gives up everything to follow Jesus. Like, you can't do that. You have a hope and a future. You could have been something very special in this earth. Instead, you're giving it up? It looks cattywampus to the world. You remember Judas, who wasn't thinking like Christ, and when he sees Mary of Bethany pour out the spikenard, he'd had enough. That could have been sold and given to the poor, he says. Actually, what he meant is that could have been sold and the money could have been put in my purse. You see, Judas's mindset is like the world's mindset. In fact, that one event is going to trigger the betrayal of Jesus Christ. He is going to go to the chief priest right after that. You see, it is an offense when someone sees a Christian, quote unquote, wasting their life. Is it a waste? You see, everything about this is an affront to our natural man, which is why it's a challenge, which is why I'm calling it a game. Unless you understand this with a smirk on your face, unless that righteous competitiveness doesn't stir inside of you. This is very hard to understand. You need to understand the thrill that is a part of the Christian journey. This is not me saying, oh yeah, pick up your cross and be miserable. Pick up your cross and let's follow our king. Oh boy, guys, this is the ultimate adventure. You see, we're not thinking about the splinters. We're thinking about the joy of sharing in this grand adventure with our beloved. Acts 21, 10 through 13. So the book of Acts, if I could try and explain it to you in a very unique way, it's the introduction to the histories of the church of Jesus Christ. It's like we need a prologue. We need a prologue to understand what is about to unfold over the next 2,000 years. And so what do we get? We get the book of Acts. Now most of us are like, I just want to go back in time to the first century church and I want to see God's power once again. Okay, do you? You see, the the early church wasn't always healthy. By the way, the church at Corinth was a mess. So just because it's early doesn't make it better. However, they did have something. They had something unfolding before them, and part of that something was Paul the Apostle. Paul was modeling for them something that they didn't at first understand. Here's a great example of it. I'm going to call it the doctrine of suffering with joy. It's not just the doctrine of suffering, because many of us have learned that. Yes, it's important, and yes, God gets glory out of this, and so I will receive it <clears throat> as, as best I can. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches receiving these trials and these difficulties with joy. It's a very different mindset than just receiving them and trying not to have a bad attitude. Paul is going to explain this. In fact, the book of Acts is going to lay a prologue or a foundation for us to understand the version of Christianity that we are in today. So and as we stayed many days, remember this is Luke writing the book of Acts, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, let's stop right there. So we have Luke, we have Agabus, we have, uh, what, Philip and his daughters uh, that are there in this situation. And they're all hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying. The Holy Spirit is saying, the man who owns this belt, which happens to be Paul, is going to have this done to him. He's going to be bound if he goes to Jerusalem. And so, what do you think the natural man instinct is? Agabus, even the one receiving this from the Holy Spirit, Philip and his daughters, and Luke are all going to have the same reaction. And it's the same reaction we would have. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. But what is Paul going to do? He is going to show us how this works. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, they're looking at it as a negative, And Paul is going to flip it on its back and say, This is my privilege. You see, this is what we have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. Are we going to follow... Or would we rather have a different rendition of Christianity? You know, one with a little less danger. You see, everything about what Paul is setting before us is extremely uncomfortable to the natural man. Which is why you can't live and reason and approach the scriptures out of the natural man. You need to be born again. You need to transfer from natural man thinking into spirit man thinking. It's called the mind of Christ. Christ where actually you get excited about these things. You get excited about living for Jesus. You get excited about trials and challenges. Why? The same way an athlete gets excited about going into the gym and having a good workout. If you've ever had a really good workout, you're sort of muttering under your breath the whole while you're having the good workout, like, oh boy, I wish this thing would end. And yet, you enjoy it in a strange way. And when you get done, you're thinking, wow, that was a good workout. And guess what? You go back and do it again. It's the same thing Paul's saying here. Like they're, they're saying, the man who owns this belt is going to actually have you know, to do 1,000 push-ups and then 100 burpees and then you know, 300 setups uh, in less than two minutes. and They're all like, oh, don't do that to yourself. That would be painful. He's like, hey, guys, this is my privilege. You see, it is my joy to be able to train for Jesus and to work out for him to be able to become strong, to showcase the glory of God into this generation. So John 13, 15, this is Jesus talking. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Do you remember how Jesus lived his life and what he did for us? I'm showing you an example that you too could follow this. And then we're going to see 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You see, it's, it's a path that they have gone down. Jesus trailblazed it. Then Paul said, this is actually the way Jesus went, guys. I think we're actually supposed to follow him. I think he actually means it when he says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow. Let's do it. And everyone's like, I don't know if that's what he meant, though. I mean, I can't imagine he would want us to die. Every single one of his apostles died as martyrs. The only one that didn't die because of martyrdom was John. But John was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. And then he was just floating around in it and nothing was happening to him. So they pulled him out and not a hair on his body was even singed. They didn't know what to do with them so they exiled them to Patmos. In other words every single one that followed Jesus went into the danger zone. The question that I want to have linger heavily in the air today not just for us but for the modern church is are we really are we willing to get our game back on? Are we willing to start doing this the way that God assigned us to do it or are we going to excuse ourselves because we're North American? It's like, look, that's for other countries, but not for us, which is why we are so weak today. So look at Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example. Who's talking? Paul the apostle. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Do we really want Jesus as a pattern? (laughs) Do we really want Paul as a pattern? I mean, couldn't I have someone else as a pattern? Someone in the modern day that lived in America? You know, something like that. I don't know that I really want this as a pattern. Or do we? You see, I have a strange glee inside of me as I go through these messages on the dangerous edge the game on the dangerous edge, dangerous games of dangerous men. For some reason, that's like very thrilling to me. You see, I've caught something, even though I still have the same tremble inside of me. I still have first man thinking when I look at some of these things. So even as I'm preaching, I sort of cross back and forth. And there's part of me that's like, ha, and then there's part of me like, yeah. It's the same thing if, if you were headed off to boot camp. like I am I've always wanted to go to boot camp. Leslie thinks that that would be a little selfish of me to go off to boot camp and leave her with six kids, right? And I tend to agree that's not what I'm supposed to be doing right now. But what is it about boot camp that is so attractive to me? I like the rigors and the vigor of it. I like the manliness of it. I like the challenge of it. I really do. And yet, if I was going off, like say I was carting off tomorrow to boot camp, there would be a part of me that would be very much over here, trembling, trembling going, oh, what did I get myself into? But there's another part that is ruling, that is greater than this weakness in me, this propensity towards self-consideration. that says It's God-consideration. Lord, I want to go where you're leading me to go. Thank you for this privilege. Christian ministry is exactly that tension. God never lets you get comfortable in Christian ministry. The moment you start to get into your comfort zone in Christian ministry, he'll bust you loose from it. And he moves you constantly into this domain of uncomfortability, of dependence, of need for a greater strength to enter in. And look at 1 Timothy 4.12. This isn't just Jesus saying, you see, I've given you a pattern, I've given you an example. This isn't just Paul saying, hey, I've given you a pattern, I've given you an example. Then we are exhorted by Paul to become an example. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and in purity. So even though, yes, that's talking specifically to Timothy, and most of us are going to look at that, that's the exhortation to a young man, well, as far as I'm concerned, we can still apply it to us, that we are called, as Timothy was, to set a pattern or an example for the church of Jesus Christ of how they are to live. Dangerous manhood. Dangerous manhood. Uh, I love this screen, dangerous man. I should have had a guy on the front with some mud splattered all over his face. Maybe a little trickle of blood going down and that would have gotten maybe a better picture of it. It's manhood, yes, but it's manhood with the light switch flipped on. It's stronger, it's bolder, it's more courageous and more alive than the run-of-the-mill rendition of manhood. It's manhood that is wholly given to God, a carrier of his agenda, and as a result, it's manhood that aggressively heads toward the dangerous edge and finds great satisfaction there. It's interesting, but Christianity, when Christianity has lived full volume, is always considered dangerous to the culture it's in. Did you know that that's actually the way it would be described? This is dangerous. This needs to be stopped. Why? It's just people loving. It's just people living for Jesus robustly. Big smiles on their faces. How could that be considered dangerous? They're turning the world upside down. They're causing people to be confused and to think that there is one God and this God deserves their life. You see, this has always been a threat, which is why I'm calling it dangerous men. You see, God's men, when they are fully living... God's pattern are a threat to the culture in which they are in. Now here's what's interesting is Christians were thinking, well, that's the greatest blessing to a culture. The greatest thing that could ever happen in a culture is to have a godly man rise up and live fully for Jesus Christ. The greatest gift in this world was Jesus, the most godly man that ever lived, right? And yet he was deemed a threat, and they took him out. You see, this is part of the pattern. I do not know why we are so eager to throw out this pattern instead of embrace it. Because we lose the game the moment we do. We lose the thrill. We lose the smirk on our face. We lose that understanding of the true thrill that is involved in standing against the system of our day and standing for Jesus Christ. So a short list of dangerous men in the Old Testament. Let's build up to the New Testament. and Just watch how God is going to display this. So Job, when the widow was in danger, the orphan vulnerable and the poor was in need of a defender. That's Job chapter 29. He was a dangerous man. Moses, when God's judgment rested squarely on the head of all Israel, he stood in the gap and said, God, take me instead. Everything about him was a man that was bold and courageous and ready to lay down his life. Phineas, when Zimri openly mocked the righteous law, I don't know if you guys remember, he took his javelin and it's a pretty uh, gruesome scene, which I will not go into detail of, but he worked righteousness and God is going to applaud this manly response. David, when Goliath defied the armies of the living God, he is going to step square into the center of danger and stare it in the face and mock it. Oh, Eliezer, When the Philistines sought to take Pasdemon by sword. So there's, as far as we know, three of the mighties, David and two of his mighties, Shammah and Eleazar, that are standing against a whole host, a whole army. And they're going to fight them like all day long. And it's going to say that Eleazar's hand is going to grow weary. But he is going to cleave afresh his hand, which is almost like a, a permanent wrapping. Like he may never be able to take it off again. But he is not setting down his sword. It's like, I'm built for this. There's some kind of thrill. And I've never been a soldier in actual real warfare, so I can't speak to it, but I have studied a lot about it. And one thing that I've always found fascinating is that a soldier that is ready for battle is eager to actually engage the enemy. They're eager for it. I, I can't even comprehend that. Why would you want to do that? And yet, It's because of a readiness. It's because to them it's part of the grand adventure. Joab, when the Jebusites publicly mocked King David. So all it says is that, you know, they were mocking David and David looks to his men and says, the first one to knock the smirk off of their face will be first among my men. And all it says after that is, and Joab was named first. So my my picture is Joab, when he hears him, and he sees David starting to talk, he's running ahead. And he's jumping in. They went up the gutter into the city. So as far as we know, literally, Joab's going to jump into the city amongst the Jebusites and then strike the cheek of one of the Jebusites. I mean, who does that? For the defense of my king's honor. Oh, I love it. Jashobion, we already talked about him when 800 Philistines threatened his king's domain. Josiah, when Israel had gone astray and the house of God was defiled. Hezekiah, when the Assyrian king mocked the powers of God to save. All wonderful stories. A foundation is laid in the Old Testament for what? For Jesus. Jesus is going to step on the scene and fulfill this dangerous manhood pattern. Jesus, when in our rebellion we claimed ourselves gods and thus invited the wrath of God upon our sorry heads, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, that's good. A different sort of man, one inured to danger. Now, I I put a word in there that you may not be familiar with, inured, this is sort of, you know, like your mom always finds a reason to teach you an extra word in your vocabulary. That's what I'm doing. I'm sort of like a mom in that sense. And so, inured, it means to be seasoned for something. It means to be groomed for something. It means to be prepared for something ahead of time. So, if you're inured for danger, that means before you got to the danger, you were trained to actually smile at it. You were trained to not cower. You were trained to jump in that snowy pit and take down the lion in it. You see, before you get to it, many of us are wondering why we're so cowardly when we get to the edge of the pit and we hear the growl from within and there's snow around. We're like, well, it's snowy. I don't want to slip. I don't want to. And we have all of our reasons why we don't jump down is because we're not inured. <laughs> we're not prepared ahead of time. We're not seasoned. We're not toughened for the day of testing. And so as a result, because we have not been cultivating this pattern in our life, we shy away when we have the opportunities. And by the way, I've seen that in my life so many times over. I was groomed as a suburban boy. Everything comes easy when you're in suburbia. You always have food in the pantry. You always have food in the refrigerator. I had all-you-can-eat meals all growing up. And so as a result, the need wasn't there for me to labor to gain something. I didn't have to go out and kill a deer to feed my family. And so as a result, when difficulty started coming up in my life, especially when I entered ministry, I was not inured for it. And so I found myself shrinking back and And I went into a whole season of anxiety, and, I mean, which paralyzed me. Literally, it shut me down completely. I had such anxiety over financial issues over the challenges, over false accusations, what are people going to think about me? I was not inured for dangerous things. And as a result, I found these dangerous things crippling me. So, you know, when I was 28, many people that have gone through elderly know these stories, but when I was 28, I was in the hospital with a stress disorder. I literally, I mean, I had all the symptoms of a heart attack without a heart attack. So no credit for a heart attack, but uh, you know I had a stress disorder. How embarrassing is that? So I'm 50, and the weights of my life are a thousand times heavier, maybe even more than that, than they were when I was 28, and I have no anxiety, no stress. Oh, I have weights, but they don't harm my soul anymore. You see, God has built something strong. I'm inured for challenge now in a totally different way than I was then. But that was a process. I literally had to come to God and say, God, I need to be trained for difficulty because something's wrong with me. I'm trying to get away from it, but I realize the Christian life is full of it. And if I'm actually gonna live this thing, I need to be prepared to jump down in pits on a snowy day and kill lions. So R.M. Ballantyne, this is from the Gorilla Hunters. So R.M. Ballantyne was like, the author for boys, little boys loved him. I I think at his funeral, he had, was like over a hundred thousand boys show up at his memorial service. Boys loved this guy. He spoke the language of boy. And so listen to this quote that I grabbed out of his book, The Gorilla Hunters. Boys should be inured. See, I prepared you guys for this. I taught you a vocab word. Now we're going to exercise it. Okay boys should be inured from childhood to trifling risks and slight dangers of every possible description, such as tumbling into ponds and off of trees, etc. This is like a mom's worst nightmare uh, right here. In order to strengthen their nervous system, they ought to practice leaping off heights into deep water. They ought never to hesitate to cross a stream or over a narrow, unsafe plank for fear of a ducking. They ought never to decline to climb up a tree to pull fruit merely because there was a possibility of their falling off and breaking their necks. I firmly believe that boys were intended to encounter all kinds of risks in order to prepare them to meet and grapple with risks and dangers incident to man's career with cool, cautious self-possession. So what we, this isn't the Bible, right? This is R.M. Valentine. Now, some of you that are boys are like, oh, it's pretty close to the Bible, though. I mean, that's, that's R.M. Valentine." However, what he's saying is, for a man to be ready to meet a man's challenges, he needs to be trained as a boy. He needs to be inured in his younger years, seasoned and toughened, so that when he becomes a man and he gets man challenges, he doesn't shrink back. I'm just going to say, that is not the culture I grew up in. That's not the version of Christianity I grew up in. We are not inured for challenge. We are trained to avoid it like it's a plague. We're a culture that immediately goes to six-foot distancing and masks. Instead of, well, but what about the elderly that have need right now? Oh, stay away from them! In other words, instead of entering into the difficulty, we find excuses to separate from, well, I'm just quarantining so that I don't harm anyone right now. It's a weird flip that our culture has come to, to the point where if you're fearless and you're bold to help, you're the problem now. We have to literally see straight in a world that is criminalizing everything that we as Christians are called to do. So, this is what R.M. Ballantyne says. But you notice I'm going to cross out some words to make it a little sharper. Boys should be inured or seasoned, toughened, acclimated, and readied from childhood to risks and dangers of every possible description. You see, what I'm preparing you for is the next slide, which is this one a dangerous thought. Okay, now this isn't the Bible, but it is. <laughs> it's just taking our Valentine's Ballantyne's thought and converting it into our world. Christians should be inured, seasoned, toughened, acclimated, readied from conversion from the very beginning point when we come to Christ to risks and dangers of every possible description. Are we ready for this thing? You see this smile? It's very real. I love the challenge of the generation in which we're in. I'm glad I'm alive right now. I'm glad I'm at a full maturity at this exact time in history. Are you? Are you happy that you've been dealt the hand that you've been given? Are you thrilled over the fact that, yes, all stands against you? Oh, that's part of what makes a great movie. Think about a great movie line. How boring would it be if everything was easy? No conflict, no challenge. The character just sort of wakes up in the morning, goes through his day, and goes to sleep at night. What was that? Yet that's the type of life most of us want. We want a life without incident, without challenge. I don't want to have any of that hard stuff. It's the hard stuff that makes the great storyline. It's overcoming the challenge that we want to see in every other story. Why don't we want to live a great story? The Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. What does a mom say? Now, sorry to use moms, since I'm not a mom. This is Valentine's Day. I should be a lot nicer to moms. It's just mom wisdom. It's that that idea that, you know, I don't want my child ever to go through any challenge whatsoever. I do not want them inured for difficulty. If they ever face difficulty in their life, I'm just hoping they can overcome it at the time. And so this idea is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. Be careful for nothing. What does your mom say? Be careful for everything. Be careful for nothing. Now, that's not the typical translation we would hear. Be anxious. But do you know that word, miramnal? It means to have care for. But here's what kind of care it is. Self-care. You see, the problem, what Paul's talking about is have no self-thought, self-concern, self-anxiety for anything. You know how your life changes the moment that you remove that off the table? You're not supposed to have that at all. No, you're not considering your skin, your health, your future, how this is going to affect you. The question is, how does it affect Jesus, and how does it affect his purposes in this earth? That's your care. Do you know that you're actually commanded in Scripture to care, but for his glory and for the concerns of others? I'm supposed to care about you. I'm not supposed to care about me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ says, be careful for nothing. Matthew 6.25, Matthew 6.31, Matthew 6.34, Matthew 10.19, Luke 10.41, and Luke 12.11. Whoa, that's uh, some pretty good grounds for a legal argument there. You see, this is a very resonant point in Scripture. You're not supposed to have that self-anxiety. You're not supposed to be concerned about your own welfare. You're supposed to be concerned about His glory. You have one life to live, give it to Him. Let him spend it. Let him use it. The Apostle Paul, I would have you without carefulness. If I could help you, as the church, Paul says, I would make sure that you would have zero care inside of you, that you would not be careful about all the things in your life, but that you would be careful for the things of heaven. The dangerous pattern. Do we remember who we are following? See, it's interesting. Almost everything I'm bringing up is, it's a tremendous challenge to all of our souls. It really is. But that's not a bad thing. That's normal. Now, there are those strange people on earth, like Bear Grylls, that are just strangely attracted. But the reason Bear Grylls is strangely attracted, remember the crocodile uh, hunter, what was his name? Uh, Steve Irwin. And he's like, you know, rejoicing over a dangerous animal. And he gets all close to it. He's like, you should not get close to this. And then he gets close. The reason he's so thrilled is because from his youth, he was inured. That's the reason. Where does a Bear Grylls come from? Probably Bear Grylls' dad. Where does a Steve Irwin come from? Well, Steve Irwin's dad. And what's Steve Irwin's son's name? What's his name? What is it? Robert? Where do you think he got it from? It's in in the culture of the Irwin family. What do you think we're supposed to do? This is the culture. We're supposed to be like Irwins, where we're like going into the dangerous places and, you know, yelling in some Australian tone about how exciting it is. We should be the happiest people on earth, and the world's like, hey, you should stay away from that. We're like, this is where the excitement is. Bring the cameras in. Look at this we got an unreached people group right here. They have never heard about Jesus Christ. And now, let's do it. Let's give it to them. Hey, bring it in. Isn't this fun? Uh, But sir, you could die. I know. Isn't it amazing? Guess where I go when I do? You see, this is our privilege. The accusations. You should remember, this is the dangerous pattern. What are the accusations? I just brought out a few in Acts of what were said, not by God or by the church. This is what's said by the culture around about these dangerous men. They stir up the people. That's Luke 23, 5. Speaking of Jesus, actually, he stirred up the people. Acts 17, 6, they turn the world upside down. Acts twenty-two twenty-two. they are not fit to live. Acts 24, 5, they are creators of dissension. Acts 24, 5, they are a plague. These Christians are dangerous. The dangerous games of dangerous men. All of that to get to this. Five games you can start playing today. Well, if you listen to last week's message, I gave you some really fun games to play. I mean, they're, they're really fun games. And these are, these are fun too. Okay, so these are the dangerous games of dangerous men. So here's our game one. It's called 100% Always. Isn't this cool? I have a little game cover. It's like it's in a box, and so you could take it home with you and, you know, open it up. But the, you know, the cover, you know, we'll study covers just to sort of get the idea. This guy just keeps going. He's, he's, he's built for it. He's a nerd. 100% always. Never stop. No downtime. Keep going. Now that seems to contradict a certain dimension of Christianity, which is rest, right? So it's like, well, how do the two go together? You see, we never turn off our devotion. We never have a moment in life where we go, okay, time to turn off my outward focus. I need to turn and focus on me for a little bit. You see, 100%... Always is the way a Christian is built. Now, the way we do that is by resting in Christ. You cannot do this in your own human power. You do not have the energy. You do not have the ability to do it. But when you rest in Christ, you can be on always. I don't care if you're awakened in the middle of the night. Have you ever heard the term an ungodly hour? There is no ungodly hour to a Christian. If you're awakened at two in the morning, it is not an ungodly hour, it's a godly hour. And if God wants you to be praying for someone, you're 100% always. You are always on call to the Holy Spirit. There is no point in your life where you turn it off. This is part of the game. But you have everything you need to be able to do it. So there's a self-preserving mindset, which is over here, it's a natural man thinking. You're tired, Eric. Let someone else carry the weight. Let someone else bear the burden for this one. If I were to try and tell you how many times I've had that quote or something similar to it come and be presented to me, I mean, it's innumerable amounts of time. The constant bait towards Eric to think about himself and to justify why I don't need to be always 100%, it's it's replete, guys. It's all the time, which is why I must be engaged in this game to win it. I must recognize I need to hold the self expending mindset 100% in every situation. So my muttering, what I always say to myself is no downtime. You know that I don't have the typical downtime in my life, and yet I'm like the Energizer Bunny? But it's not because I don't have downtime as far as heaven's concerned. I have rest in Christ I have replenishment in Christ and with my family. It's not that I don't have that. It's that I am always on. So my thought life is always being maintained. My emotional center is always being monitored. If a bad attitude starts creeping up, the Holy Spirit can convict me. It doesn't matter when it is. So as a result, there's a sharpness that is tended to. The post office principle. Eric, your assignment is right in front of you. Be fully present, fully given, fully deposited. Everything needed for absolute engagement will be supplied. I always call it the post office uh, principle because when you go to the post office, you can have a line out the door. The post office employee is trained to focus 100% on you and act like they don't see it. And someone in the back of the line could be like, hey, could you guys hurry up in there? And that post office employee is trained to not be distracted. This is Christianity. You see, we have a job. It's right in front of us. Let's be fully engaged in it. Hundred percent, always. My God asked me to watch with Him. I don't know if you've ever had that in the middle of the night where God does wake you up and says, "Eric, would you pray?" I have. I have a burden. Oh God. God, I'd love to, but I really need some sleep. Are we always available? My wife asked me to stay up and talk with her. Oh boy, that's a hard one, especially when I'm already told myself I'm going to bed. And so I, I like start to go into bed mode. Once I go into that mental click, it's like I start to immediately, okay, I'm, I'm almost gone. I'm almost gone. I'm still walking, but I'm almost gone. And then Leslie says, hey, could we stay up and talk? I, there's a few things I wanted to pray about. Huh. Okay, that is where I need something more than Eric Ludy. I need the grace of God, but this is exactly where the grace of God kicks in. My children ask me for special attention. My disciples need to be pulled through. My staff is in need of my strength. The weak are desperate for my help. The hard-earned resources are required for the sake of the glory. Each one of these is a story in and of themselves, but it's actually the practice of this game, game number one. Game number two, isn't this a fun game? Enjoy every single moment there is not one moment in your life, I don't care how dark it might seem, that you shouldn't be enjoying. You see, you'll see in the word enjoy, take off the E and the N, and what do you get? You got joy. Rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. You see, rejoicing evermore, rejoicing always, is actually the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us, according to Thessalonians, Paul in Thessalonians. Which means we always are rejoicing, always, always. Even in the darkest moments, we rejoice. Why? Because we know that God is going to turn what the enemy means for evil into good. You see, we always know that God has the upper hand so we can rejoice even when it's challenging. Don't forget to stop and smell, and I crossed out the flowers, your wife and kids. You see, dangerous manhood can easily get distracted on the worldwide problems. But if you're going to enjoy every dimension of life, you need to make sure you stop And you take advantage of these small things in your life. Uh, The girls and I went to a father-daughter dance. Was that last Saturday? So a Saturday ago. And I tell you what, whenever you do something like that, what's going through your mind is they're growing up way too fast. And I need to cherish every single moment of this. Don't forget to cherish the breath in your lungs. Don't forget to grab the joy available for every moment. The suffering for fun principle. I talked about this last week. People go adventure camping. People just go camping. And they call it fun. I don't know. I mean, this is the most miserable thing. You're sleeping on this, you know, uncomfortable rock beneath you. And people are like, this is so fun. I have never really found fun in camping. But that partly to do, I wasn't inured when I was growing up towards camping. So it's really hard when you're a little older to go camping. It just is. Which is why we must inure our children for camping, I guess. But the same thing is true with, like, mountain climbing. All these things that are high-risk and yet people like love the challenge of it. They're out and the, you know, the wind is gusting against them. They're freezing cold. Their beard is frozen over. And they're like, oh, this is great. Christianity right there. We're in the midst of a very difficult, dangerous situation. And we are laughing, singing, leaping the entire while. Game three, extravagant radical giving. So the game's called extravagant, by the way. So that's when you, when you see it. But radical giving is, is what you do. So that's a whole pile of presents right there. Isn't that a cool picture? And so what you have is you have something to give. And imagine how much fun it would be. I used to imagine if I had a million dollars and it was just given to me so that I could give it away, how fun that would be. It's like, oh, wouldn't that be neat if I could just give money away? Well, who says you can't? You see, you have things to give away. You have time. You have encouragement. You have life. You have love. You have all sorts of things, even if you're empty-pocketed financially. You have gifts to give, and what you're supposed to do with this one life that you have is extravagantly give it. Jesus extravagantly gave to you. He set a pattern, guys. Paul extravagantly spent his life. There's the pattern. Extravagantly give. Give. Don't just like mm, okay I'm going to give a little here and oh I need to be wise I need to hold. extravagantly give it's part of the principle. The goal of this game is to try and outgive God. And then I have a little sub comment underneath. Um, good luck. You see you actually can't outgive God. God is the greatest giver. He is the true picture of a cheerful giver. Try and outgive him. That's the game. Hint, remember the widow at Zarephath. All she had was a little oil, a little flower, and the first thing God's gonna ask for is that little oil and that little flower. You give that to God, and it'll never run out. Your job is to extravagantly give and watch what God does as a result. The gauntlet. So this game is called The Gauntlet, and there's a, there's a guy in the picture, if, you can, if you're getting this on the podcast, and uh, he's being swarmed by birds. I want you to imagine that each of those birds is fear and anxiety and fretting and foreboding. And they want to to land on you. That's just part of the game, right? They're trying to land on you and you don't let them land on you. It's a a principle. You know, you can sit still and a bird could probably make a nest in your hair, right? But you're not going to do that. You are going to actually move. You're going to kick off. You're going to punch away. You're going to get away from the birds. The enemy wants to bring you down with fear, fretting, anxiety, foreboding. You won't let it touch you. And that's part of the game. Number five, the other crowd going after an even bigger applause. So there's this like rock concert crowd over there and I have a big, uh, you know, nullification sign over it like, nope, we're forsaking that crowd. We're not living to get that crowd's approval. We're going after the applause of another crowd. Isn't that a fun thought? It's an unseen crowd. The things that the world applauds here are actually not the things that heaven applauds. But we need to start listening for heaven's applause. And that's usually when we're doing things that no one down here applauds because oftentimes no one sees them. The Christian does things that no one sees because we're living for a completely different crowd. And as a result, when you understand this, this is a fun game. It's called the other crowd. The silent things here are the loudest things in heaven. So one of the things that I just wanna encourage all of us afresh is to do what we call silent things. You know that when you write a little encouragement note to someone in here, and maybe you give them an anonymous uh, little bit of money because you recognize they don't have any, those types of movements are heaven's best movements. You see, no one here knows to even applaud you. Why? Because it wasn't done for that crowd. It was done for the other crowd. And when you do that, you will find a greater impact from your ministry too because it's actually more genuine. The work that you're doing is not... Uh, being done so that you can get with that itch that crowd or that applause or that hey that's well done oh that's such a good example to me you see we want that which is why this is the game of giving that up you want to live for heaven you want to truly make a dent on eternity you start playing for another crowd when you forsake the applause here you get something even better there the parkour mindset, last week we talked about parkour. Parkour is the goal of getting from here to there in the most creative way possible. And so actually you see a chair and you do a flip on it. You see, you know, this pole, you need to jump over that pole. Uh, you, whatever it is, you, you, you see that rafter, you're gonna somehow jump up to the rafter and move along with one hand all the way to the other, other side and then flip over, land on your feet on one chair, tip it sideways and then do a flip to another chair. It's like most of us just wanna walk a straight line to the back of the room. We don't wanna go through all of that. But the parkour mindset sees life as a thrill, sees every obstacle as a challenge. So we need to have this. Go out and look for obstacles. And when you find one, turn it into an opportunity to do amazing stunts, flips, and awe-inspiring jumps. So I gave this picture last week. This is just a picture of the church. Uh, that's what I called it. It's, it's everyone doing parkour, right? This is us. We're the church. We're happy. We're excited. We get to jump around like this. The Christian mindset, when you find an obstacle, shout for joy and immediately transform the overcoming of that obstacle into great adventure challenge. Father, I pray that you would equip us to understand how to live this life in light of how you lived yours, in light of how the historic church that we so admire lived. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would conform us into your image that we would not fight it, but that we would cherish your pattern, that we would not try and fix what you say to meet what we want, but that we would be altered to match what you say. Lord, here we are for your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.